This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. There are two things that are usually done in the privacy of your own home, sex and hoarding. Emily Maguire's new book, Love Objects, is about these actions becoming public. Welcome back to Published or Not, Emily. Thank you for having me. Well, Emily, at the heart of this book is a family. Let's look at the three generations of men described as having prison in their blood. Yeah, so the, the youngest of these three uh, is Will, and we, we get a, a fairly deep insight into him in the novel. He's one of the three main characters. Um, Will's father died young, so Will sort of hasn't had that kind of role model um, into his 20s, certainly not past his teens. Um, And on his mother's side, his grandfather uh, actually went to prison for murder. And that's something that was really not spoken about in their house. Will Will grew up aware that he had this grandfather who was a criminal, but it was absolutely not a topic of conversation. So it sort of haunts him. Um, And then there's the three generations of women. The mother who had to make money wherever, her two daughters, Nick and Michelle. Michelle's younger than Nick. She's actually more worldly. How would you explain that? Yeah, it's one of those uh, things that, that I've sort of noticed a lot in my life, actually. People will assume that the oldest child in a family is going to uh, be the more mature and be the one who's, you know, most connected with the adult world sooner. But, but it often just doesn't happen that way. We all know that kids develop at different rates and maybe some people never fully grow up and become what would be considered a functional adult. So in this particular family, the older sister, Nick, she's, she's quite disconnected from people in a lot of ways, uh, although she tries. And she's, she's very dreamy. She doesn't always pick up on things straight away, whereas Michelle, the younger sister, is, you know, she's sharp and she's street smart and she's really got the lay of the land and of the adults, even as quite a small kid. She, she knows what's going on. And there's Michelle's daughter, Lena. Up until six years earlier, this had been a very close family. Nick loved her niece and nephew, Lena and Will. So six years before the start of the book is when Lena and Will's father dies. And very soon after that, Will himself is arrested on a drug charge and sent to jail. And so the family is absolutely imploding at this point. And Michelle um, quite quickly finds a new partner and decides to move with him to Queensland. Uh, The family was previously in Sydney. Um, And of course, that means taking Lena, who's still really young, with them. You know, it's, it's the best intentions to give the daughter a new start in life where everyone doesn't know her as the girl whose father's just died and whose brother's in prison. But for Nick, again, who's sort of a, a more dreamy, disconnected character, doesn't have her own family at this point. Her young niece is, is just so incredibly important to her and she finds herself alone when the rest of the family moves. Six years on, Lena's come back to Sydney. She's an older age student at uni and... This is where uh, Nick is also living. Being a little bit older age and a little bit more mature, she actually looks around and finds friends and she finds Annie. And like Nick, Lena, Annie is pretending to be a com- in a completely different class. You know, she dresses in jeans, but raggy tops, but she's got a bit of money. And also from a different class is Josh. He's at uni. And Annie warns Lena not to get involved with Josh. As she says, the boys in that uni college are 
quote, a bunch of shit-smearing, bullying, racist rapists. Why has she called Josh and that cohort that? <laughs> well, um, unfortunately, and there's some, uh, a bunch of real-life examples of this around various universities, not just in this country, but around the world, uh, that certain uh, colleges or, or houses at these universities do gain reputations over the years for hazing, for pranks that are on the more vicious side, for sexual assault, for disrespect in various forms. And uh, Josh, who Lena's got her eye on, is in one of these particular colleges at, mm-hmm. at her university. And she, she uh, would like to think and does think that to everyone else in his college. So Lena asks uh, Nick, now Nikki, Nick, her auntie is 40, 48 years old. Is auntie Nick renowned for giving good advice? <laughs> auntie Nick gives what feels like good advice to a kid or a teenager. She gives the advice they want to hear often. <laughs> she gives the advice that's going to be the most fun thing to do. She's not the parent. She is the fun auntie. So her advice is, quote, forget about good girl, be a happy girl and take a ride on his thighs. <laughs> yes, they've been, they've been looking at a picture of him in which Nick has noticed that he has quite substantial, uh, in a good way, thighs. <laughs> so Lena tells her friend Annie that, that she's been, quote, laid by the hottest member of the Australian squatocracy with the most orgasmic pleasure she'd ever had. And her friend Annie's comment back is, Put it down to experience and move on with gratitude that he didn't give you chlamydia or something worse. So that's all quotes from Emily Maguire's Love Objects. Now, every Sunday, Lena meets up with Nick for lunch, but the book starts with Nick not turning up. So Lena goes to her house and what does she see there? So it's important to to realise that Lena and Nick are very close and they do meet for lunch every week, but but Lena actually hasn't been to Nick's house since she was a little kid or since she moved to Queensland all those years ago. So when she uh, goes around there to check up on what's happened to her auntie, why she hasn't been up at lunch, what she finds is that Nick's house is so full of stuff that you can't open the front door properly, that you have to, you know, turn sideways to walk along the hallway. And it's rooms and rooms and rooms of stuff that Lena can't even distinguish what it all is. And and there at the back of it, um, on the floor in her bedroom, is Arnie Nick, who, who has taken a tumble and, and almost been killed by all of her stuff coming around on top of her. Look, the description of the house, you know, we can imagine you do it so vividly. But, Emily, what you've done here is you've actually got into the head of Auntie Nick and explained to us just why she's like this, what these love objects mean to her. How did you do that? But I didn't have the confidence to write this book and the character of Nick until I had this amazing opportunity to spend a year as writer-in-residence at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney, which is actually a medical research centre, but they have this incredible program where they let a creative writer in there for a year to just question the scientists and basically hang around asking uh, novelist-type questions. (laughs) And so that allowed me to really uh, get into the I mean, the more academic and scientific research into hoarding behaviour, but then also through the connections of the university to several major hospitals in Sydney, I was able also to speak to some of the frontline staff, like social workers who um, might deal with someone like Nick. And then again, eventually through that, building up some trust 
um, meet a wider range of people than those I'd known in my immediate life who have a hoarding behaviour. And that was just, I, I couldn't have written the book without that because the insight and the time spent with these people, it, it just sort of infuses all of Nick's character. Look, there's things that she she's she looks around and sees. There's the tiara that she wore that was given to her on a very happy occasion with her mother when she was a child. There's the red jumper that she wore on her first date with Tony who, that's all creased and ruined and everything. But it's also a burgundy leather handbag that she picks up in a garage sale. And I, I just, you've got behind this into Nick's head and how she sees and views that handbag. So it's all of these objects she has a real feeling for. Well, when she's in hospital, the social worker will only let her out if it's safe back in her house. And Lena takes it upon herself to clean up the house, but it also suits her to be away from the university. Why is that? Beautifully strong side Josh um, has, after uh, hooking up in what was an extremely joyful Felina encounter that she thoroughly enjoyed, she finds out uh, in the worst possible way that he, without her consent, taped or videoed that encounter and that it's now out there on the web. Um, she finds that out from people who have seen it and send it to her. So two cameras with serious thought about placement and choreography, the splicing, the editing, the pixelated faces, but her scar is very evident. And Josh even scored her. So how's the social media treating this? There's people who seem incredibly eager to talk to her about it with a tone of sympathy, people she knows in her life, but she just feels uh, absolutely sickened that they've even seen it. But it as happens with these videos, they just replicate. So wherever it was first released, it might just be among a circle of friends. But there are so many sites out there that just take all these kind of footage without any kind of needing to know their provenance or that people had consented. Because she has been rated on the video by Charming Josh, um, people are obviously chiming in on the comments of how they agree with his rating or not. And Lena's there sort of in, in disgust and horror, but also this awareness of feeling disappointed that her rating's so low at the same time. She's, she's completely been forced to objectify herself from an encounter that she went into feeling very much like she was in charge. So apart from being broken and disgusted and ashamed, she gets all these inappropriate messages as well as ones from Josh apologising and wanting to get back with her. You know, it all comes... Yes, he's, he's terribly sorry. <laughs> terribly sorry. Into all this comes big brother Will, and he's in a bad way too. What's wrong with Will? Well, his most immediate problem is that he has a terrible toothache that he can't afford to get seen to. But actually what's happened is much bigger in his life is that he has lost his job up in Queensland and his living girlfriend has dumped him. Uh, which is heartbreaking enough for him because he really did like her. But to make it even worse, she had two small children who he was sort of acting as a stepdad to. And so now he has been completely cut off from, from those relationships, which really meant a lot to him. So he's, he's very lost and lonely and, and in terrible pain. So he, he and Alina helped to clean up Nick's house. And what's Nick's reaction when she comes home from hospital to see it? 
Uh, Nick feels incredibly violated and devastated. She sees what the what the kids, what Lena and Will were doing. They think they were helping, but actually, to her, it's just the ultimate betrayal, and she she's bereft. Look, just a quote quote from Nick in the book: "Rape. It feels like I've been raped. The violation of it. She's just stripped away everything." violated me. So Nick tells both her niece and nephew to leave. Will realises he has to man up and do something for his own family. Save the individual before he can save the planet. But saving the planet, this is another topic within the book. As well as women being treated disrespectfully, you've also made a point of the environment being treated disrespectfully too. It felt uh, in the, that sort of wasn't in there quite so much in the early draft, although anything that deals so much with stuff and the accumulation of stuff is, is always going to have some element of what we're doing to the planet. Um, but uh, one of the later drafts I was working on, we actually went through that terrible bushfire summer. Mm. Um, and even up in Sydney in the city, we were getting the kind of smoke that people in rural areas are a lot more used to. And, and I decided that setting the book in that time and with that, uh, hazy sky and backdrop was was a, a really thematically strong choice to sort of tie in with all of these issues, um, treating the planet terribly, but also this idea that, you know, what happens is everyone gets used to it very quickly. There's ash in the air and there's smoke everywhere and people comment and put Instagram posts up about it and then just get on with things. And, and that seemed to me such a, I mean, that's what really happened. And it seemed to me in terms of this novel, part of what the issues I'm digging at here is these are also people who they don't go to counselling, they don't have therapists, they don't talk about what's wrong, they just get on with things and yet the, the stuff that's wrong doesn't go away just because you're not dealing with it and that's true of the planet as much as it's true with Nick and her trauma accumulating all around her in her house or Will and his rotten tooth. The, the stuff that's wrong when we don't deal with it, it it's still going to choke us. One of the last scenes in the book is they have the family looking at a sunset with the vibrant colours coming because of the smoke and ash. The family are reunited and talking. Now, how they did this, you'll have to read Emily Maguire's Love Objects. Look, of course, the book is so much more than the cover, but the cover is so impressive on this book. It's, it's a woman disappearing in the wallpaper. Oh, it's such a gift, this cover. Um, as soon as I saw it, it's designed uh, by the, the designer Sandy Cull, but she's used an actual work of art by an artist called Cecilia Paredes, um, who is that woman on the cover since she, she is an artist who paints herself to fit in with background. And it just was immediately so perfect to me. You know, at first glance, it's a very, it's a cluttered cover, but it's beautiful clutter, which is exactly how Nick sees her world and her home is this beautiful clutter. But also if this figure, if her background was taken away from her, she is then just an almost naked, odd, oddly painted looking person with no context. And, and to me, that's a, a perfect image for how Nick feels when, when all her stuff is taken away. Emily McGuire has written about love objects, things that are personal becoming public and the deep hurt associated with it, especially if those things are sex and hoarding. Oh, Emily, thank you once again for a magnificent read. Oh, thank you, Jen. And now it's David's turn. One man's trash is another person's treasure. And so it is in Sandy Scornick's novel, Chasing the McCubbin, 
where scouring garage sales becomes an art form. So Sandy, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. What you've got here is garage sales almost becoming an art form. Yeah, I like that way of seeing it, actually. It's an art form, but it's also a real skill as well, as you can see from the characters and their just sheer knowledge of antiques and ceramics and the history of those items. But it also begs the question about what hard rubbish and discarded items actually represent. First and foremost, because of the title, it means hope. So what does chasing the macabre actually mean? So just in terms of that title, I'll go back a step. So my parents have been pickers, as the term is now, for, well, since before I was born, actually. So I've really grown up with them in the background, talking about their finds, talking about what they're going to sell, how much things are worth, talking about little stories about what their friends have found, etc. So it was always sort of in the background of my childhood. And funnily enough, I didn't really interrogated I didn't ask questions it was just something that was sort of there and it wasn't until later in adult life that I started to take a little bit of interest and at one point my mum couldn't um, help out my dad on his sort of Friday picking rounds and I offered to go out and help even though I had my phone and it was really easy for me to plug in the addresses I said yeah sure I'll go out and help and we did it for about six weeks or so and I became more and more intrigued and I I started taking little notes I realized it was more than just the object that people were selling they were also parting with memories and at one point I asked my dad why do you do this I'd never asked that one fundamental question and he said to me sand he said we're all chasing the McCubbin and I I said you're chasing the what <laughs> and then he said you know those prints and I was oh right we had one in our 80s bar which is yeah and we had a McCubbin print. I was like, right, okay. And he said, but we want an original. We're all looking for that one lucrative item. So I actually had the title before I had the story. So that's what chasing the McCubbin means. It means searching for something that make all those previous weeks and months and maybe years where you've been searching all worthwhile. We have uh, Ron and Joseph as your two main characters scouring these garage sales. Now, Ron's a widower. What's his actual motivation? Oh, that's a really good question. I think foremost financial. A reader could read it that, yes, he is struggling. Uh, it's the early 90s. There's a recession. The whole community is undergoing extreme hardship. So first and foremost, financial relief, but there's definitely something more that gets him out of bed. There's that feeling of hope, which you mentioned. There's that feeling of satisfaction. There's just, it's a rush almost. It's, um, and I always like to think of Ron as a modern reincarnation of the man down on his luck in Frederick McCubbin's painting. He's out there looking for something that will just make their lives better in some way. We also have Joseph, who's unemployed, and there's a sort of backstory there of domestic violence in his family. But what does Joseph actually gain by teaming up with Ron and going out to these garage sales? 
Yeah, I feel like initially he gains maybe that hope again of having finding something that will offer financial relief and maybe improve their dire situation. He is living in poverty. Mortgage rates are incredibly high. They're behind on their house repayments and eviction is inevitable. So I guess initially that's what he is aiming for. However, as he goes about um, these sort of Saturday and Friday picking sessions with Ron, something else happens and he gains a mentorship, I suppose, in with Ron. Um, his, Ron isn't the typical mentor. He's not, um, yeah, he's probably not somebody that you would think as, you know, fulfilling that role. However, Joseph doesn't have anyone in his life apart from his mum, who is very um, absent from his life. So he lacks a friend, he lacks a mentor, and Ron starts to fill those gaps that he probably didn't recognise that he had in his life. And and it takes him away from his incredibly isolated existence. We've talked about the economic value in some of these items, but there is another form of value. And I'll just read something here. Joseph searches for anything glass. Behind an orange flowered crock pot, the type his grandmother used to have, he sees a small pink glass object. He runs his thumb across the diamond shaped grooves and realizes it is a perfume bottle. He feels the sudden urge to open its lid and breathe it in, to connect to its secrets and answers. Did its owner use it to purify, to disguise? Did she pour cheap perfume inside like the ones in the bathroom cabinet at home? He gives in to this strange impulse. The faded flowery scent acts as an invisible thread, pulling him straight to his Auntie Pauline's house. So many of these items contain more than just the, a financial value. There is a memory associated with them or that can be sparked when we recollect things through them. Absolutely. And I really love that scene. And I think smells are so powerful. Um, and during this time, the early 90s, men conformed into these very strict sort of roles around masculinity. So for Joseph to give into that impulse and smell perfume would be a direct, I suppose, insult to, on his masculinity, but yet he does it anyway because that, that overpowering sense of that memory and the familiarity that he feels to that bottle just overrides all of those sort of rules and norms that he has become accustomed to living by. But Ron dismisses that item as not worth a razoo, but yes. each item carries with it some other value, like uh, being able to spark a memory and take one back and, and transport one. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose just getting back to your earlier question about what chasing the McCubbin means, maybe it means more than just finding an item that will relieve you from poverty. It's about finding connection. It's about maybe nostalgia as well. And I found recently during the pandemic, nostalgia has been a very sort of grounding um, emotion and experience for a lot of people because when there's so much uncertainty, often uh, we go back to our past where those uh, memories um, and connections are very grounded and 
and certain in almost some ways. And so during that time, there was a recession. There was so much uncertainty. So these objects um, had a very, uh, I guess, grounding influence on um, Joseph because they reminded him of a time where I suppose there wasn't so much despair and uncertainty. You build a community of characters in this novel who frequent these garage sales. Fritz the German, that bloody Russian, toolman number one, record man, the grub. It, it's like its own world in many ways. Oh, it is. And when I was going around with my dad, you know, I just, it, it's a real subculture and there's a sense of community. There's a competitiveness, absolutely, but there's also a sense of connection. And someone like Ron, he's a widower, as you mentioned, he's on his own. However, these Saturdays, these garage sale mornings where they're sort of waiting for the for the gate to open, that's their time to socialise. Those moments offer a connection. So there is a community despite it being competitive. You, you really get to see a whole other sort of um, subculture when you head out those, but you need to be there early. The interesting thing here, though, is that it's a competitive world, but it's also a supportive one because... When Joseph finds himself homeless, all of these individuals who had previously been fighting for the same items against each other come together and support him. Yeah, they do. And I absolutely loved that part. <laughs> I, I love writing that part. It just came so naturally because Ron gives the impression throughout the whole book that these people, they're a nuisance, they get in the way, they take his items that he that was probably rightfully should have been his, etc. But that's only his perspective. So I wanted to show a more nuanced Sort of perspective and and to show that actually no they, these people have heart and they're battling themselves and they all have their own story at, as to why they go out get up at the crack of dawn on a Saturday morning and do this it's not just all financially driven it, it, it there's so much for each individual and yeah I really like that when Joseph finds himself on the other end when tables turn the community really rallies behind him well you you pick up on that irony because Joseph and his mother are evicted but yeah their possessions are on the nature strip they become then almost not quite victims but Joseph yes. finds himself on the other side of that picture yeah he does and yeah Ron's response to that um he shows how much heart he has in that moment when Joseph finds himself on on that side of things and yeah, it's a strange situation for Joseph to be in because he has seen um, evictions. He's seen Ron assess hard rubbish saying, right, no, quick eviction. And then he himself becomes something to be judged. The items of their lives were um, displayed or, or strewn along nature strips for other people to judge and to sift through and to um, profit from. The novel is actually set in 1991, as we've alluded to, and this will be the sort of final question. Would the practice of scouring garage sales be the same today in this age of digital marketplaces? Or is it a lost world? Oh, that's a great question. I feel like it, to some extent it's a lost world. 
in terms of sort of creating a, a story from it, yeah, it wouldn't be the most exciting story having watching people on their phones sort of bidding on eBay. I think there's still that community. I guess it's just transformed to online. I mean, even on Facebook, when I was researching the novel, I posted on a Melbourne hard rubbish group a few questions like, "Can what's the most amazing object you've ever um, found? What stands out and why? And a lot of the objects weren't to do with their financial value. It was more about yeah, something that they remember from their childhood, a piece of crockery or or something that they, they remember have their grandma having on um, in their hutch. So there's still that sense of community, but it's shifted online. So I don't think I could probably create a story out of that, but who knows? Well, if the listener and readers want to find out more about the relationship that develops between Ron and Joseph, if they actually want to learn about what items of rubbish are of value, they might like to read Chasing the McCubbin by Sandy Scornick, and it is a transit lounge release. So, Sandy, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks, David. It's been wonderful. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.